welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and for a change in format this week I am live with my guests so rather than uh, doing the recording over Skype which I've done for the last few episodes I'm, I'm with an actual person physically face to face today so um, and for, for a number of different reasons this podcast was important to me the the role of emotion in the workplace um, I already I already talk about a lot about how important that is but how that then <coughs> excuse me links into well-being how it links into mental health that's a, a really important um, aspect for me and if there was a voice from uh, from within the UK that I wanted to get on the podcast then my guest is that today so let me welcome our guest Carrie Cooper hello good to be here Thank you, and thank you yeah. for taking the time to. No to problem. Speak. Um, it's better doing it face to face anyway. Yeah, I, 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 like enjoy, I, I enjoy the mix and the yeah, variety, me too. Which me is too. Good, which is good. Um, okay, so as our regular listeners will know, um, I start with a um, uh, an unexpected but innocuous question. So uh, my question for you then is going to be: What has surprised you in the last week or so? Uh, what surprised me is the fact my daughter has decided, having been with somebody for twelve years okay. and has two kids, they decide they're going to get married. And they're going to get married in Los Angeles, oh, where wow. I come from. Okay. So um, it's not only surprised me, but stressed me because, of course, what I have to do is now find accommodation for my other kids, and yeah. you know, we have to we're, the groundwork we have to do is enormous. But it's quite nice because it's going to be in my hometown where I have nephews and cousins of my of my kids. So very surprised, okay. but pleasantly surprised. So pleasantly surprised. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so for me, uh, I was surprised this week that I uh, I played football for the first time in a long time. So um, I, I had an injury last year, which meant that um, I wasn't physically able to do as much as I would like to. And I went to the park with uh, with my son, and some friends arrived at the same time. And I haven't played football for a long time. It's got to be at least at least a year since I kicked a ball around. Mm. Um, and I thought I was going to be in lots of pain afterwards. And I was really pleasantly surprised that I wasn't. I was in some discomfort, and I was in. Um, uh, but I wasn't in lots of pain, so that was that was again a pleasant um, a pleasant surprise. I don't think I want to talk about that because I'm a Man City supporter, and we just oh, lost to Wigan you? last night. See, so I'm not sure I actually want to go into the football <laughs> arena at all. Although, funny enough, in a way, I'm not pleased they lost, but I think they need less pressure on them and to focus in on what are more important things like yeah, yeah. in in their world, the yeah. Premier League, the Champions League, and the the League Cup the final. League Cup. So I'm ha- I'm not I'm unhappy, but not terribly depressed by it. Right. Okay. Because yeah. uh, uh, for for the listeners, then uh, when I arrived in the office, I noticed there was a Man City book, but there's also a Leicester City Football Club coaster. Oh well. no! It's only somebody I know who supports Leicester City, ah, right, and okay. he gave that to me when they won. Ah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's memorabilia. Yeah, stuff. it's memorabilia stuff. Yeah. Okay. yeah Man City, hundred percent. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Bristol Rovers for me. So I, you know, I, yeah. I although I must admit, I'm one of the few people in in Manchester who my second team is Man United. Is it really? It always has been because the guy who brought me to Manchester was Sir Roland Smith, who is a chairman of Manchester United PLC. Okay. So and he was the head of the management school we're currently in. Oh right. Now, okay. At one time. So some of that affinity with the person that brought you over then. Yeah. So I've always of... been if I decided to make Manchester my home which I have yeah. and all my kids were raised here then wouldn't I want to see both teams do well but I want to see City beat United but just so if they come 1-2 as they did a few years ago okay. I'm more than more happy. happy with that yep okay that's, that is really rare that's really rare it is rare yeah okay um, so when did you come over to Manchester? I well I came over from the States in the 60s okay as a student yeah uh, and uh, it wasn't Manchester. So I came over uh, to Leeds University. I was going to stay for a year, and then the Leeds University, I had done an MBA at okay. UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. Yeah. And what ended up happening is they offered me to do a PhD. Then my supervisor moved south from okay. Leeds to Sussex yeah. University. So. I was still working on my PhD, but it was a Leeds PhD. But I, I was in Sussex. Yeah. Then I got then I got a PhD. Went to Southampton University in the psychology department. Okay. Um, and I was a lecturer in social psychology. Mm. And then from there came up to Manchester. Sir Roland Smith, yeah. the chairman of Man United. Yeah. Uh, he's the guy who brought brought me. Ah, uh, right. Okay. And uh, and I've been here ever since. And, okay. And I came in the mid seventies to Manchester. Okay. So when you said brought me to Manchester, you meant brought you up from the south. 
I brought me up from, from the, the south yeah, up yeah, to yeah. here. Yeah. Okay. So it was uh, really good. Okay. And has uh, his uh, well-being and mental health always been part of your? It, it, kind of it is. It's it, it, not just from a workplace point of view. It always has, and the reason it has stems from my college days at, right, okay. at UCLA, University of California, because I came from a working class background. Mm. And in order to go through university, I was the first person, my whole family went to university. Oh, really? Of the right. whole family. Okay. Um, and I had, my father was a hairdresser. He didn't have very much money and he was from Russia actually originally. My mother was Romanian, so I'm Eastern European by background. Why? Wow, although okay. born in LA. Yeah. And I had to work to go through university. I mean, mm. they didn't have any, didn't have enough money. Yeah. So I, one of the jobs I had a really powerful job was a social worker for the city of Los Angeles while I was doing my MBA yeah. for example okay. at UCLA yeah. at the same time I was working full time for the city of Los Angeles and they let me go to classes whenever I could fit them in wow. go see my clients at night and when wow. I saw that kind of deprivation mm. uh, what I, and believe me this was South Central Los Angeles so it was the black community mm. I also worked with down and outs in the middle of LA, okay. it was horrible. What I saw was so depressing, because mm. in the US there is no welfare system. Yeah. So the poverty, the stress in people's lives, the financial stress, I think that really influenced me dramatically. Okay. So from wanting to be a lawyer, mm. I then, which is what I was thinking I was gonna do, yeah, I then yeah. shifted into psychology, and then I guess I transferred that to look at the health and well-being of people in the workplace. Yeah because I had an MBA yeah. I then did a PhD at Leeds on that kind of topic. Yeah. I was looking at what, you know, what affects people's health and well-being, mm -hmm. generally working people yeah. in every kind of occupation. That's where it stems from, but I, the etiology of it mm -hmm. is definitely being a social worker in a, the most deprived part of Los Angeles. And, and how like emotionally, how was that for you, having to see that deprivation, see that poverty, see see all of that? How did it, you... it was a shock. Mm. So, although my father was a hairdresser, we weren't very well off. We're okay, though. We're living yeah. a middle-class life yeah. in a, uh, you know, in a, in a white neighborhood mm. and everything. You know, it was very little ethnic mix where I was. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, and then to be exposed to a part of Los Angeles where there's a heck of a lot of people in those conditions. You yeah. Know? Um, living in, I, yeah, many living in poverty, but certainly experiencing financial stress, every kind of stress you can imagine, stress in families, mm. influenced me a lot, you know. And, and the good news was that I'm glad I was exposed to that. And I was doing it as a job, yeah, yeah you yeah. know, to work my way through university. It mm. wasn't that I was seeking it out, but once I got exposed to that, I then thought to myself, you know, I'm I'm really lucky, mm. you know. And then when I started finish the MBA and started doing my PhD, I started to ask myself questions like, what about workplaces? They they can damage people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how do uh, you know what do what do we do about it? What mm -hmm. is causing people to do it? And then I did a project. Uh, one of the projects I did with a PhD student, I was asked by a big multinational, could I go in and explain to them why people were not taking promotional moves internationally? Okay. All right? Yeah. So we're just doing something on, on executive mobility. Yeah. Right? And then when I started to do interviews with them, mm. and then I was going to do psychometric testing with them, but with a PhD student, who, by the way, later became a professor, so she's really good really lovely person mm. um, they kept saying well it's the stress do I really need that I have a young family yeah okay you know yes it is promotion but it's going to that country do yeah. I really want to leave my support systems here uh, my employer just willy-nilly doesn't care about me just wants to shove me off there mm. I started to hear things about yeah, okay. what the workplace was doing to individuals and how that impacted their families mm. and so then we did that project for them, and then we said, do you mind if we come in and do a study of your top 200 execs on the stress levels they're experiencing? Because we're hearing a lot about this. Uh, right, and okay. we were the ones who did the very first study on, on 
managerial or executive stress. Wow. And uh, that was very revealing because mm. people would talk to us because it was done anonymously. Yeah. And uh, we did a really interesting study that raised a lot of the issues. Then I started, then once we started to publish that, mm. write books on it, articles and everything else, then other occupations, nurses, yeah. teachers. I mean, you know, I've done probably 85 occupational groups looking at what are the what are the factors that cause you to get stressed at work and mm. how does that impact your family life and how does your family life impact your workplace yeah the work-life balance bit yeah and so since then i mean you know and i thought maybe i'd get out of this field <laughs> but we haven't sorted the problems really no uh, uh, yeah we've uh, identified issues mm. that cause individual problems whether it's a pilot or a teacher or an executive or a shop floor manager mm. we we know what causes them problems and mm. that does by the way vary with new technology and everything else yeah so it's always it's a live thing it yeah. doesn't just, it's not static um, but a lot of organizations haven't dealt with it mm. you know and some have and the ones that have have been more productive and this is an important issue for UK PLC mm. because a leading cause of sickness absence is the common mental disorders of anxiety depression and stress that's the number one cause now yeah, yeah. it used to be musculoskeletal when we're in heavy manufacturing but yeah, we're not we're doing not, heavy we're not yeah. in there we're a service-based economy yeah. knowledge-based economy so the people issues are the big ones so it's the biggest cost of that it is a very important factor in our lack of productivity. Mm. The UK is seventh in the G7 and 17th in the G20 mm. on productivity per capita. And I'm sure it's about the, the, the sources of pressure on people, like how they're managed, the hours they work, uh, their relationships in the workplace, mm. all of those kind of emotional issues. And... So it, it, in, uh, it's a bit of a loaded question because I'm going to I'm going to All open right. it with in your load, load your gun because <laughs> I'm going to open with in your experience which implies that I have my own experience but um, in your experience is is because you you, still, you talked earlier on about how when you went in to do that first study because it was not because it was anonymous people would talk about their the stress they were experiencing and the causes of that. Um, but they wouldn't talk about that openly uh, otherwise because of the lack of, an, uh, of anonymity. Has that, has that changed over time? Is it, is it more okay or is it more credible or is it more permitted for, for people to talk about stress in the workplace now? Um, it depends on the organization you're in and like Mind has a campaign at the moment, don't they? Mm. You know, about talking about your mental health problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in some organizations, I think people are still inhibited from using the S or MH words, yeah. mental health stress yeah. words. Yeah. They don't, they're inhibited because they think it could adversely affect their career. Mm. But the more senior people are doing it, the more it becomes permissible. Yeah. So when the guy, the chief executive Lloyd's Bank said he was taking time off for depression, that changed, that started to change in, in the banking sector. Yeah. I still think that people are, are very inhibited from talking I think it's still a stigma mm. to talk about mental health and your emotions and the fact you're not coping yeah and I think that organizations still if they were thinking about promoting you and they heard that you were having you were not coping well with mm -hmm. the pressures of your job yeah. rather than saying how are we going to help that person because they've got the technical skills mm -hmm. that we need yeah and maybe the people skills that we need so how do we do it uh, rather than thinking that way, mm. I think deep down they'd never say it, but deep down your promotion would be inhibited. Mm. So it's still around. There's still a stigma about mental health, yeah. about expressing your emotions, mm. about showing any form of weakness. Yeah. So, and it depends on the sector, it depends on the senior management, um, but it's still there. Yeah. And, and, and my experience sort of supports that, I think. And, and part of the reason that. Um, uh, I, when I called when I set my company up and I called it Emotion at Work, uh, I, I've lost clients off the back of that because they said, oh, "Can you can you not talk about emotion in in that like overt way?" And I said, "No," because 
that's that's what drives people. That's what, that's, that's, that's what you know, absolutely. That's what drives the, us as a human species. I'm not going to come in and, and minimize it or make it small. And they sort of yeah, but if you talk about feelings, you know, everyone thinks that's like soft and and fluffy and and yeah. and you know, and, and they're not comfortable with that stuff. And well, for like, many years, I had the problem of the S word, stress. Yeah. So, in a sense, the field of workplace stress morphed into well-being mm. because companies saw that was more permissible. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, we're trying to enhance people's well-being. Yes. Right? Rather than reduce their stress levels. The reason they said that, and they never said it, the reason they moved in that kind of direction was, the implication was that if you're under stress, and a number of people in your organization are under stress, it should be your responsibility as senior management that you are, yeah. you are one of the primary causes of it. Yeah, absolutely. Therefore, they don't want to say that. Well-being, on the other hand, in people's heads, it's about apples on desk, bean bags, ping pong tables. It's not about that. No, no, but, I agree. But well-being is a more generic, less evaluative construct. Yes, and that's why people moved and in, morphed into well-being. I didn't mind that in a way, and the reason I didn't mind that because when you're looking at well-being, you are looking at stress too. Yeah, yeah. But you're also looking at how do you enhance people's well-being? How do you create the culture mm. to do that? Rather than just reduce the stress levels, what other things should you do? So, for example, uh, and when you talk about emotions of work, why that's critical is because the line manager is the most fundamental person mm. in the workplace for your health and well-being as yes, a person. absolutely. Whoever you are, no matter from the shop floor to the top floor, if a person has high EQ, if they have good emotional intelligence, you're not going to get ill and you're going to be enhanced. So why well-being, in a way, is a good one because it incorporates stress in it. Yeah. It's because, so for example, I might not have a boss that stresses me, but I might have a boss that doesn't uh, manage me by praise and reward. Mm. He doesn't manage me by fault finding, but he never tells me when I'm doing a good job. Yeah, okay. He never does the recognition, which is a positive construct. Yeah. So number one, you want, a, you want a line manager from shop floor to top floor who has really good EQ, who manages people by praise and reward, not by fault finding, mm. who gives them feedback that's constructive when they don't do a proper job, because yeah. we all make mistakes, that yeah. who understands they need flexibility because of commitments outside, mm. who allows them to work flexibly and doesn't feel make them feel guilty about it. Yeah. All of those kind of characteristics are fundamental to a well-being culture. <sighs> so what, I, I want to take us off on a, on a small diversion, and uh, because I think okay. it's, it's important that we that we think about those those key factors that Im, that impact on workplace well-being and, and workplace stress. I think one of the challenges that that we have, especially around managers being um, emotionally intelligent in that way, is the narrative that is present around wanting people to be happy at work and and i support and challenge that narrative in a couple of different ways because i think what it's doing is it's creating an impression that the only credible emotion at work is happy yeah and and if you are angry or frustrated or upset or, or anxious or scared that that they're the wrong kind of emotions to bring into mm -hmm. the workplace um and the challenge with that is well that just isn't reality you know no. if, if people will will bring all of those things in when they have a particular important particularly important project to, to deliver they will bring with them some anxiety about that and then they, that might be then going to the line manager and saying oh can i just run some things past you and if the line manager isn't attentive to that and isn't able to think oh actually they just need some they need some of my time they need me to listen they need my support the um the risk is that it gets perceived as you know, lack of certainty or lack of confidence or lack of belief. Mm. And it's none of those things. It's just concerned about doing a good job and anxious about wanting to make sure that it's right. If if the line manager isn't um, attentive or able to pick up on that, then it it then risks that building. It, it, you know, so yeah. that anxiety doesn't get listened to once and then twice and then three times. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on yeah. the notion of happy. Mm. I'm not for the happy Let's create a happy work environment. Happy work environment could be ping pong tables. And, yeah, yeah, or bean bags and, and, and slides, and, bags yeah, and, slides yeah. and all sorts of things you get in. You 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 hear about in, in the Googles of the world yeah. in, in, in Silicon Valley. But for me, the word well-being is about contentment. 
Mm. It's about being content. That's not transitory. Yeah, absolutely. Being happy one day and sad another is transitory. That's mm. just an emotion you experience. Yeah. I don't want to make people wandering around just happy. Yeah. What I want to do is create an environment where they feel content, valued, trusted, cared about. Mm. And that's the kind of environment I want. And a lot of that is created by managers, yeah. partly, yeah. and by colleagues, and the team, yeah. and all of that stuff. And it's about people being able to talk about problems they've got mm. and feel safe in doing so rather yeah. than, you know, they're going to be punished down the line. Yeah. Um, so it's about creating a culture and it's, 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 it's primarily by line managers, but other people do it too. Mm. Because to be honest with you, there's an over, overarching culture which you get in the organization you work for, mm. right? Which can affect the, your small little area. Yeah. You know, if we are very bottom line and we expect uh, you're in a law firm and you have billable hours and you have to meet the billable hours and we're, and we're ruthless about that. Yeah. Right? Even if you have a good uh, senior partner working with you as a lawyer, mm. but that's what's coming from on high. It's going yeah. to affect you, it's going to affect him. Yeah, absolutely. Or her or yeah. whatever. And so, it, it it's about just feeling valued mm. and trusted in your organization and feeling there's a, a real true psychological contract between you the employee and the employer the mm. contract contracts are two-way so I can understand the employer saying we need you really committed working hard long whatever we need you when we need you mm. but the re reciprocity yeah the reciprocal relationship in a true contract is we will value you, you'll have reasonable job security, we will uh, train you if you need it, we're there for you. Mm. And if you need flexible working, fine. If you need to spend, you know, if you want to work a lot from home because of commitments with kids or yeah. elder care or whatever, we're up for it, you know, and we will facilitate that yeah. in any way we can. That's what we need. Um, don't get a lot of that. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, one of the things that does trouble me is the kind of manager, the bulk of managers we have in place now, in my view, the bulk of them, the majority, mm -hmm. are pre-recession uh, managers. In Before the recession, um, there was a lot of mobility. The economy mm -hmm. was, all the world economies were going up. Yeah. There was blips in the 80s and blips here and there. But basically, yeah. look at the stock market going haywire. Yeah. In a way, you didn't need to create well-being cultures as much because people could get jobs elsewhere. Yeah. If I don't like my employer, guess what? I'm gone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they did. Recession occurs, massive job insecurity for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Well, say eight years. Yeah. And that's still with us. Yeah. So... Now it's well-being and managing stress and all that sort of stuff is now a bottom line issue to retain good people yeah. because they sheared off so many people during the recession mm. and changed the nature of the psychological contract. So jobs are no longer for life. Yeah. You're, you're a disposable asset, da 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 da, da. Yeah. But if you want to retain, so it's, it's really mean and lean now most organizations. Mm. You can't afford to lose key people now. Therefore, mm. you're going to try to create a culture. But the problem we have is the managers, many of them, are st still in place from the old culture. Yeah. So we need them to be trained up, more EQ'd. Yeah. Or those who don't have EQ and are untrainable should go. Mm -hmm. I don't mean go fired. Just give them a non-people job. No. Yeah. There are some people who just shouldn't manage people. Yeah. They're good technically at doing a particular thing, but interpersonally they just can't do it. Mm -hmm. They can't cope with emotion. They don't have don't recognize when people aren't coping. Mm. Um, so I think we need to do kind of an audit of our managerial cadre and say, who are untrainable? The bulk are trainable, incidentally. Yeah. And the next generation of ones we recruit to look after people, whoever they are, mm. should be people with EQ. Yeah. And where does that, um, where does, what informs that view for you then? Is that... Does that come from kind of the from the experiences you've had of, of speaking at companies or from research you've done? Where where does that? Because uh, I so it, I agree with you, and, and in my experience, um, the the 
the the recession completely changed the the way that um, both employee employers viewed employees and employees viewed work. Absolutely. You know, so it, it, from a from a combination of a you know as you said, you know, disposable, but also I think there's there was there's been a, a slight shift in people saying, well, if I'm going if I am going to have to work. I want to do it somewhere that I can enjoy it, and I can mm. I can feel like I am contributing in in some way. I don't think you know that's not necessarily universal. I think there there has been a real shift in what people want from work, and I don't think that's generational. You know, people talk about millennials and generation whatever. I don't think it's generational. I think it's a um, it's, it's been a shift in the in the in the psychological contract between the two. Yeah. But yeah, that again is based on my experience of the work I do with my clients and so on. So I guess I was curious to for that. <clears throat> for that Where does it come from? Yeah. I think, well, I do a lot of research, mm. so I do big studies, yeah. and the, it comes partly from that, yeah. partly from my experiences, but I think there, you're right that a lot of people now, given the recession, mm. and now a bit more mobility occurring, yes. in other words, people can now shift. They couldn't for eight, about eight years. Yeah. It was very difficult to get another job. Yeah. And the downsizing that took place in the finance sector and many other sectors mm -hmm. was massive, yeah. 25 to 35%, whether you're in the public sector, private sector, it yeah. was horrific. So I think now people are saying, but I, I, I think that the millennials are slightly different in the millennials okay. are saying, and research and, and surveys are showing that they're saying, I'll go to work for that employer, but if I feel they're not giving me what I need as a person, mm. I'm gone. I'm okay. going to look elsewhere. The mobility is higher among them. Um, and I think probably the reason is they saw their parents, the millennials, get really stuffed, using okay. a nice technical term, okay. during the recession. I think they think quality of life is very important probably more than older generations. Mm. And so I think there is a genera slight generational difference. Um, but I think for all employees of all generations, mm. you are right. I think they're thinking about the quality of their working experience now more than ever. Yeah. And now the mobility is coming back in and people can shift from one job to another. However, there's the, the, the fly in the ointment is Brexit. So okay. my worry now yeah. is that Brexit are making people feel really insecure. Now, not a, not a good piece of research has been done on this, and I'm talking to colleagues about doing this now, right, okay. a big one, yeah. because I think this is a real big problem. You talk about the insecurity of the recession, mm -hmm. and that was a, almost a depression, forget a recession. Yeah. Brexit is in the UK having the same I think having a similar sort of effect, an insecurity effect. Mm. And now maybe people are making decisions to go places think, well, because there might be a period while we're negotiating trade deals, and that will take 10 years minimally yeah. to do that, that maybe I better go to somebody who's pretty safe, global, a company that's global, mm. it's got this characteristic, security. They may seek security rather than quality of life. Yeah. That's the worry I have. Mm. Or may not be as entrepreneurial in creating their own businesses. Yeah. Because again, what if Brexit occurs and we have no trade deals and I can't, you know, I'm creating this business, but I want to export or I want to do this, that, and the other. Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to get the staff because, mm. because of immigration policies. Mm. Yeah. So I don't think the government has thought through that. The implications of Brexit on people's sense of job security yeah. and what that might mean for being innovative, mm. for being mobile, etc. Yeah. But I think it should because I think it's, you know, you're hearing a lot of talk about that now. Yeah, so I, th I think, um, so the, the, in the innate ability that humans have to catastrophize is great. Oh yeah. You know, so yeah, I agree. the, 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 mm -hmm. the, 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 the whether you call it the threat response or the stress response, the you know the ability to see a threat and then uncertainty, and, and, yeah, and, and uncertainty is a huge part of that. Yeah, with, absolutely, with, with, without a doubt, you know. So is that I remember there was one organisation that that I worked in and with, um, in two different guises, and it would get to a particular time of the year, and everybody would start freshening up their CVs, 
everybody would start having a look on jobs boards because they knew that if you when we hit this time of year this was the time of year that generally speaking a piece of um, organizational redesign would happen mm. um, and it, it, it happened for five years in a row and then it would you know so year one and year two it was really you know c- catastrophic catastrophic for people to experience but then it would get to a point where well we're, we're entering that month of the year when we expect to hear in the next next month that there's going to be a big part of organizational redesign which means jobs are at risk and you know, there was one population that would put a risk every year for three years in a row and some people would stay and some people would go but the the degree of uncertainty that that created at an organizational level was really debilitating because essentially it meant for a quarter of the year for the month before the organisation's design would happen, the month that happened and then the month after, not a lot got done mm. because everybody was so oh, anxious and uncertain. And now, at societal level, we've got that anxiety. Yeah, I'm with you. That uncertainty now is at a societal level. And this go, is real uncertainty. This is profound uncertainty. Yeah. And for any, almost every sector you can think of mm. is worried about what it's going to And more and more, you get the drip feed of it in the media mm. that uh, look at that you know there may be no trade deals with the US on on um, uh, the aerospace industry yeah. there may, the banks are not going to get be given the passports to trade in in Europe yeah. uh, Frankfurt and Paris will take over all the business you hear the constant drip feed of the yeah. negative yeah. makes people feel very uncertain and that affects people's job security it affects how innovative they're going to be, whether they're going to move, and who do you move to? So maybe we'll be the same. Right? Maybe we'll be in the same position as a recession because people didn't move. Mm. But there wasn't that many places to go to. By the way, there probably are places you can go to mm. now. But then you ask yourself the question: If I go from there to there, what are the likelihood that this Brexit might adversely affect that company or mm. organization more than the one I'm currently in? Mm. I'm sure in the back of people's head there is that. You know, they're very dependent on trade in Europe. Mm. What if I go there and they have no trade deal? Or the trade deal is terrible. Yeah. Well, you know, so you get, you're, you're getting that, I think. Mm. You, you get, so we went from one uncertain situation to a hiatus for a couple of years or a year or two. Mm. And now we're back into another right. Yeah. 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 And what but I mean, there's, I mean, I, I'm not saying that the UK couldn't trade international everything else mm. it's the uncertainty yes. about lack of clarity about what the implications are yes and the dishonesty of governments to actually particularly uk government mm. i mean they wouldn't even release the impact studies so, what, okay. what happens when you don't do that think about the uncertainty that you introduce when you're you you don't even want to uh, issue the impact cases mm which existed but said it wasn't they didn't exist and when you get things like that going on people think this is real potential disaster yeah so you're just creating uncertainty because you're creating those gaps and then what people people need that to perform well human beings need a sense of security Mm. not massive security not guaranteed security not guaranteed like it might have been in the 1970s when you know, there were all sorts of really pretty rigid trade union laws and that uh, there was more job security because the trade unions were very powerful yeah. and were industries where trade unions were powerful. Um, but people to innovate have to feel reasonably secure mm. and to move around and create businesses and all that. That requires a certain amount. We have the population to do it because we have a lot of creative people in the UK, mm. really creative people in the UK. but. We, are, we all need a certain level of stability. Well, so uh, and I th- I'm going to make a comparison which may or may not be fair, but um, because what, what the if we stick with anxiety and we stick with uncertainty, then so the, the physiological changes that occur with that, both in terms of the changes in um, cortisol that's released, the changes in uh, blood pressure and heart rate and respiration, um, so it, it's like. Having you know, you're walking if you're walking through a dodgy area of a city, you know, so every city's got their dodgy areas, and when you walk through that, you're on hyper alerts. You know, you're hyper vigilant for potential threats, potential um, issues, potential concerns, and you can sustain your body can sustain that for a short period of time. But if you if you walk around and around and around and around that area, you're either going to lose some of your uh, attention because the body can't sustain it. Um, or you become you start to become immune to it, and, and neither of those are helpful because it it, um, 
uh, dampens down the the ability to then be uh, innovative or to be creative or to do something different or mm. to stand out because you don't want to. It's stand a difference out. between acute and chronic stress. Yeah, well, that's, that's acute that's stress you yeah. can deal with. Yeah. I have job interviews. I have exams to take at university. Yeah. I can deal with that because it's going to end. It's a finite period. When it's chronic, like it was during the recession, mm. that was real chronic uncertainty, insecurity, and worries about whether we'll ever recover from this yeah. or not. Of course, we did, but you know. And the same thing with Brexit. Mm. Lack of clarity is doing the same thing. It's more of a chronic thing that's going on and on and on because there's less and less clarity as mm. we move along. Yeah. You thought by now we'd have the clarity on it. So you're right. A person's own individual bodily reaction, psychologically or physically, mm. is in, gets more impaired and undermined the more something is chronic and the uncertainty is there for a longer period of time. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And is, is that um, that that chronic stress aspect? Then is that anything that you've experienced in your? Uh, I've seen your research. You found it. Have you ever experienced it personally in your... In, in, yes, because in, 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 I, I, I experienced it personally because when... I've been married twice and I have two kids from each marriage and mm -hmm. all my kids are friends with them. They're really great. Yes. Yeah. But I experienced it when I knew my marriage was failing. Okay. And I got ill. Mm. I got something... At the time, it was called ME, chronic fatigue syndrome. Okay. But I got it at the time. Totally unaware that... You know, even though I work in the field, mm. you know, totally in a way unaware that it was that potential breakup which yeah, was okay. causing me to sh get uh, for my immune system to be because that's what you get when you get chronic fatigue syndrome. Basically, yeah. the stress, the chronic stress you're experiencing of the uncertainty in a relationship, yeah. right, yeah. Um, diminishes your ability to react. Mm. To the to the microorganisms you have in your body. Yeah. In other words, you, have you we all carry viruses. Yeah. Your, your immune system collapses. A virus takes over. Then the psychology takes over, which is, am I dying? Am I this? Am I that? Mm. What have I got? Doctors can't find it. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and right, and, okay. and yeah. that's what, in a way, that's what chronic fatigue. So I had that mm. at that point in time, which was thirty some odd years ago. Yeah. Um, so it affected me directly, mm. and uh, I, eventually I, got, I I understood what was happening. Yeah, you know. But when you're in it, even if you're a scientist like me, mm. and you're looking at doing study, you know, as it transpired, I then did studies on chronic fatigue syndrome with a colleague who herself suffered of this. Ah, okay. As a PhD student of mine mm. who was suffering it, and we both then did some work, mm. big work. You know, we were looking at chronic fatigue syndrome and what, why was it so prevalent. Mm. In uh, more prevalent in women than men, but really, oh yeah, okay. yeah, we did, and you know, the, there was a whole load of explanations why. Mm. But we were looking at people in the workplace and uh, who had chronic fatigue syndrome, trying to identify the factors that predicted it. Okay, in their life, in their work, and so on. And what did you find? If I if I can ask. Yeah, you. yeah, yeah. We found that uh, you know the stresses of relationships, the stresses of work, particularly on women at that time that we did the study, this was 30 years ago, Yeah, it was when we really, the, the medics didn't even know what it was. Mm. They knew it was virally linked, yeah. but they didn't know the mechanism, the mm. psychosocial factors we call them. Yeah, okay. And uh, we found that why women tended to suffer more than men is because they you know, they had a lot of stress in work environments because there were glass ceilings, women mm -hmm. couldn't move up. Yeah, okay. Um, they were more micromanaged by men, mm. little career opportunities, trying to juggle that and raising a family, family. Yeah, okay. and not necessarily getting support from their their partners or yeah. husbands, yeah. right? All of that hitting them at the same time, yet they were very diligent in the workplace and carried on even though they were fatigued a lot. Yes. Right? They, it was, it's because it's called chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah. And they got more and more fatigued and the more they tried to continue to work and look after the family and do everything the more they they got very poorly mm. uh, by the way it happens to men too but I'm just saying we yeah, were yeah, looking at women because yeah. at that time we we're looking at both men and women but at that time we we're looking at women because they tended to report more of it and it, and and the reason they got worse it was because they didn't want to let other people down which is yeah. a more female than a male characteristic yeah. I don't want to let the people that work down by not turning up mm. so here I have all these pressures on me trying to juggle 
home and work. Mm. Uh, trying to, you know, my, my, invest in my relationship, do things for the kids, be a professional at work where it's mm. difficult for women because there are glass ceilings and problems and women, you know, having have difficulty in, in, in being recognized in, in those days. Yeah, yeah. By the way, it's not that different now. It's better. Yes. There's more mobility. The glass ceiling is being pushed up. Yeah. But still there mm. in many sectors. Yeah. Um, and all of that led to the phenomenon, mm. right? Which was a uh, partly a stress-related illness, but not entirely because it's, it's, it's linked. I mean, if your immune system collapses, then the viruses take over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have viruses in your body all the time, or yeah. you're more vulnerable to viruses. viruses. Yeah. And then it actually becomes a physical. It is a physical illness as yeah. well as... Maybe the ideology of it is stress. So stress acts maybe as a trigger to it. Yeah, okay. Right? Yeah. In my view, that's yeah. what we, we came up with a view that it is a trigger to it. But it is a physical illness yes. that needs to be treated yes. properly in, on probably both levels, physical and emotional. And it, and then it may be that they're, they're not linked to what they are. But So is it, is, is it similar or different to burnout in that way? So I, I No, it's different from burnout. Burnout is... The, most of the people who work in the burnout field work in the caring professions. Okay. So social work, mm. nursing, teaching. These are the caring professions. Mm. All right. Uh, social care. Yeah. People. Um, and burnout is when you your your capacity. You, I'm sorry, you're dealing with people's problems all the time, whether it's a psychiatrist or a nurse or mm. all the time just overwhelms you yeah. and you can no longer cope. So it's the stress of caring okay. in effect. Yeah, okay. So it has been linked with that, but it, it doesn't have to be that. It could be that you burn out. I remember once talking to a manager who said to me, I burned out at work. And, uh, and he was a manager. So in a way, it's partly caring if yeah, you're yeah. a good manager. Yeah. And I suspect this guy was who I was yeah, talking yeah. to. And I said, how did you know? How did, well, how did, what happened to you? He said, well, I was driving to work one day, mm. thinking I was everything was okay. I was driving to work. And just before the plant that I go to, I mean, there's a roundabout. And I drove to work, and as soon as I saw the building, automatically went around the roundabout headed home and next thing I knew I was sitting in my lounge at home wow okay I couldn't go back into that building mm. that's burnout yeah he couldn't any longer work there mm. and you get teachers who do that they walk into a classroom or you get an actor who can not remember their lines go on stage or mm. just lose it that it's like fusing <laughs> it's a fuse in you yeah I can't do this anymore I can't do the job anymore. Okay. And and something triggers it. Uh, and it's probably an accumulation yeah, yeah, of yeah. the stress levels yeah. in that job. And it's emotional labor. It's mm. usually associated with emotional labor. Mm. Not always, but usually. So Social workers who can't do it anymore, they go to the office and you know what? They look at a, a client and they can't remember their name. They can't mm. remember anything about them. Teacher goes in front of a class and can't remember what they're supposed to do. Yeah. That's the, it. Usually, it usually hits a big. That's what usually happens to a lot mm. of burnout people. Some major event realizes they have to get away from it. Uh, yeah, <coughs> and just from a, just to be clear, sort of clarity for the listener point of view, then emotional labor. How would you define emotional labor? Just that's the overload. Sort of that's the overload of dealing with other people's problems or okay. doing the job, which the emotions of which you find difficult to be able to. Uh, contextualize or cope with mm. and, and it just burns you out you can't do it anymore yeah <coughs> and, and, I, and I think I was talking to a, um, another guest for the podcast recently uh, and she wanted to come and, and take part because she felt that she had burned out you know that, that she got to a point where she, she loved her work so much and she loved the impact it had on other people she loved the team that she was in and she cared so much about the work and doing the work well and making a difference and and helping people grow that she said it got to the point where she again just she just couldn't do it anymore Mm. um and i forgot where i was going with that no but but that's right it's about not being able to do it it just over the emotion of the job overloads you so Mm. much 
that um, you just can't mm. you can't cope with it anymore. Mm. You can't teach that class of kids anymore. Yeah. You can't do the social work job. You can't be a counselor anymore. Mm. Listen to other people's problems all the time. And do you think, in a way, and maybe I'm maybe I'm catastrophizing where I don't need to, if because there's lots of um, I know lots of organisations that are working on things like giving people more meaning at work, um, you know, having more more clarity about how they're contributing to to good of others or good of society. Is there a, uh, is there a risk that we might then end up with people caring too much and people burning out because it because their work has so much meaning and has so much. Um, no, I think meaning is important. Okay. Giving people a sense of purpose, yeah. very important for mm. your health and well-being. You know, you're doing a particular job and you have to feel it's making a contribution somewhere yeah. to something yeah. other than your bank account and paying your mortgage. Mm. No, I think sense of purpose and meaning at work is important. How many, uh, more of our waking hours are spent at work than with our families. Yeah. Think about it. Hmm? Think about how we work an average in the UK of about 10 to 12 hour days. That's the average. Mm. That doesn't even commute commute time. Yes. That doesn't mean even you you picking up your mobile phone and doing work, uh, on, uh, doing yeah. emails at night, yeah. weekends, or while you're on holiday. You don't even count that. Yeah. All right. And then, and even when you're with your kids, you're probably doing that. Mm. You're using you know the the mobile to yeah. do your emails or whatever. Yeah. So. Um, I think uh, having a sense of purpose, I think, is really, really important. Um, but you do need to have s safe space. I don't know, safe space. You need to spend time. You need to stop mm. all the stuff to do with your work at some point. When you come home, you should just stop. Yeah. You shouldn't start checking your emails. You really shouldn't. Mm. You shouldn't. You should spend devoted time with your kids, mm. everything else. But that's not reality. I mean, yeah. in recent surveys, in HR magazine and elsewhere, yeah. just a survey is nearly 40% of people first thing you do when they wake up in the morning is turn their mobile phone on to look at the emails. Mm. The last thing you do at night is the same thing. Yeah. About 40%, 35 to 40%. I mean, we know that's the reality. Yeah. You know, and on holidays, how many people check? It, and it's probably because of mobile technology. Because mm -hmm. I think when it was a laptop, it was a pain in the backside to turn it on and flip. You wouldn't do it as much, but now your mobile phone is always on. Yeah. I don't know, I just see what's going on at work. Mm. That's a killer. Yeah, and, and I think, so uh, uh, there's, a, I think there's, and again, I think there's elements of self-pressure of, you know, wanting to know what's happening and feeling like you're not letting anybody down and you're, you're up to date with what's happening. But I also think there are organizations where the, um, uh, the expectation is that, that you're you on. Know that you're on. Yeah, you know. yeah, but that's changing. Mm -hmm. And even there's a whole field called techno stress. I publish papers in it, looking at email technology and what it's doing to people's health and okay. well-being and yeah, productivity, yeah. incidentally. But companies are realizing it. So if you look at Volkswagen, for example, Volkswagen and their headquarters are blocking people's emails at night and turning on next mm. morning at eight. Yeah, okay. You're getting organizations saying you're not allowed to send emails to somebody in the same building. Other ones saying you can only oh, really? CC in two people. Oh, this is very profound now. Okay. And the French passed a law yeah, six months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The law says you as a manager, by law, law, national law, are not allowed to send emails to any of your subordinates, your staff, out of office hours. Mm. Now, totally unenforceable, right? Yeah. But, but it's sending a message. The statement is that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. the evidence is mounting that that's causing people to be on 724. Mm. But you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because we want the technology to be able to work flexibly. Yes. Right? So if you say, I know you can't use it at night, or we, no, what companies need to do, an organization need to do, is have guidance about what is appropriate behavior. Mm. And they don't. And appropriate behavior, don't send emails to somebody in the same building because you want to build up relationships. Yeah, absolutely. It's about yeah. emotionality. Yeah. Number two, don't do it at night unless absolutely necessary. Mm. Don't do it on holidays unless it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that yeah. kind of thing. And, and managers should be very conscious of sending somebody an email out of office hours unless it's extremely important. If it's important, fine. Mm. People will be. Yeah, but even then, you could just pick up the phone, couldn't you? 
And ring them rather than send Yeah, them you could. You could. But yeah. Yeah, you could, but the, whether it's ringing on a phone or sending an email, well, it's still the interruption. It's the yeah. interruption, yeah. whichever way it goes. But only do it if it's necessi- real necessity. Mm. Okay. So, in terms of, so you, you mentioned some of the key um, key sort of triggers for workplace stress. What would be some of the advice that you would give then? So, if I've got some HR people or some business leaders listening to this podcast, what advice would you give them for how to? For them to personally manage it themselves or create the culture for other people. There are two different things here. What so, would you do as a person versus what would you do if you're in a role like an HR person or occupational health or something like that? What would you do to create the right culture? There are uh, two different. So let's start with the culture one first. All right, let's start with the culture one. Yeah. So I'm an HR person trying to create the right culture yeah. in my organization. Okay, number one, I would find out from people what they want. Okay. Because you may think you know what the right thing for them is, but you have to find out from them. Okay. So what a lot of companies are doing is well-being audits, mm-hmm. right? With proper psychometric tools, you do it. You find out what employees think anonymously. So okay. you don't walk around and just ask them. You, you have them filled it in. You look at the data. You break it down in every which way you say. Women really would find that their stress levels would be lower, their well-being would be enhanced if you did this, this, and this. Yeah, okay. Men would say that, Higher uh, senior managers would say that, uh, shop floor people would say that. You break the data down yeah, okay. and you find out what's causing people high stress levels, lack of well-being, yeah. mental well-being. Yeah. And then you deal with it. Then you bring the people together to solve it. Okay. That's when you bring people okay. together. So, so you find say, out what they want. Yeah, you find out what they want. We found, I did a big study um, years and years ago now on uh, uh, a local authority. And we found social workers had high sickness absence rates and everything else. We did a well-being audit. Mm-hmm. We then, once we found out what the problems were, we then sat them together and said, that's what the psychometric says is your problem. We've aggregated all your data. Yeah. Is it, number one, is yeah. it accurate? Yeah. Yes, it is. What's the solution? We're not going to tell you what the solution is. I'm an occupational health psychologist. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Yeah. I don't do your job as a social worker. You tell me what the solution is. They came up with a solution. Mm. We costed the solution, did what they told us to do, and reduced sickness absence massively the following year. Okay. And the cost of it, because social workers, you have to get uh, supply social workers. workers and, yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. costs money. Yeah. We reduced it. But that's because we followed that kind of process. So mm. number one... Find out what people think yeah. about their job, and you have very sophisticated tools to do that. Bring people together to come up with a solution. Yeah. Okay, that's one. Another thing is, uh, quite a lot of people, so what are some of the things that would come out of that? Lack of flexibility mm. would be one. Yeah. Uh, again, line managers who are bullies, right? Yeah. Might be another one. Yeah. A long hours culture is definitely one. Lack of, um, a lack of work-life balance. Um, lack of involvement in making decisions. Mm. That's the engagement movement. Yeah, okay. So when you would unwrap it, those are the kind of th- issues that come up. Okay. Glass ceilings for women. Yeah. You know, they feel they, don't, they can't progress. Um, there's you, But you don't know until you do it mm. what they are. But those are the kinds of things, things. that keep, okay. keep coming up. Okay. Right now, that's if you were the HR person. Okay. You so. do it strategically. You don't do it apples on desks. You don't do any of that garbage. You and you don't come up with what you think causes them stress because that's not going to help anybody. Yeah. Okay. You're probably wrong. Yeah. Um, we have found very unique things you'll find in an organization. That group of workers feels that. You never thought that. That mm-hmm. one thinks that. Really? No, I can't believe it. Yeah. You know, you think da 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 da. Okay. Um, if you're an individual, yeah. for you as an individual, is you have to do in a way a mini kind of audit of yourself. What don't you like about this workplace? Mm. And what do you like about it? And then putting, you know, getting a list of those and then saying, what can I deal, what can I actually do? Can I make a change myself that will help move me in the right direction on that? Yeah, Reduce my stress levels. And if the answer is on all the things that are causing you pressure, and it really is, you can't personally make any changes, then mm. you go seek another job. Some, you can do something. You can leave. You can leave. Not right yeah. away, yeah. but you can find another employment and get the hell out. Yeah. 
On the other hand, there may be things like, my boss treats me this way and I really have trouble mm. with it. I don't feel he values me or she. Mm. But you don't. But the boss doesn't know how you feel. Yeah. So one option you have is to find a less stressful time to have a conversation with your boss and explain to him. You know, you do. You know. Yeah. Give yeah, with the specific good. examples. Yeah. Here's what. You know, these kind of things have happened that really have upset me. Maybe the majority of those people will not realize they behave that way. Right. Yeah. So they'll learn and maybe they'll improve. On the other hand, if you say you have an autocrat as a boss, yeah. You say that to them, they might really put put you down big time. Right. Yeah. It's not it's not maybe the best solution. Yeah. So for every problem you have, you do a cost benefit analysis of the options open to you to deal with it. Mm. A long hours. I can't walk out at five o'clock. But most of my work, because I'm pretty well organized, I can complete by then. But the culture is such you can't. Well you've got to deal with that because you have commitments outside with yeah, kids yeah. or something. So you've got to find a way of finding a solution to that. So what are the options open to you? Mm. And take the co option with the most least cost and the most benefits. Yeah. That's okay. what you do. Yeah. That's what, in life, that's what you should yeah. do. But inaction is no answer. Mm. If and you're not coping, inaction, just seeing, well, I hope it improves, won't, won't, won't deal with no. it. And, and I think, you know, you, back to one of the points you said earlier on, sometimes that can be really hard to see when you're in it. You know, oh, so it's totally. You know, by the way, that's the other thing I'd suggest. With a work colleague or mm. a friend, particularly a work colleague you trust, work with them to think through the issues and how you might cope with it best because yeah. they might know your workplace. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's something in the field called co-counseling. Yeah. And why not? And why not go to somebody you trust who you feel is not threatened by you, it doesn't compete with you, mm. you trust their view, and listen to them. Tell them what you're troubled with. Yeah. My boss does this all the time to me. Do you think I, I could, you know, the options open me is tell him yeah. that he does that. What do you think? Do you think he could, do you think that he would listen or would he be angry that I confronted him with it? Mm. Right? And yeah. that's how you do no, it. No, no, so I'm, working with somebody else to look at the options open to you yeah. in the context you're in is very useful. Yeah. People don't tend to do that. Women do that. Women employees tend to do that more than male employees. Oh, okay. Because who do they? Because they're much. They have higher EQ, and they'll talk to That's other it. women yeah. about their problems and my relationships, etc. Men don't tend to talk yeah. to other men about it. Mm. That's the difficulty we have. Is men. <laughs> says two. Says two white men in a room. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. But I men agree. don't have the. Many men don't have the EQ to open up and feel don't like talking about emotions as yeah. much and therefore don't talk to other men. Yes, yeah, I agree. They might talk to a woman, by the way, mm. more than they likely talk to a man about those kind of problems. <laughs> and, and and I think there's there's lots of different factors that could come into it. Whether oh, it yeah. Be, you know, gender or the uh, or status within the organization. Absolutely. You know, yeah, those are all factors. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right. Um, so I, I want to sort of bring us together and, and wrapping us up then. So okay. for, for the studies that you've talked about, I've written some of them down, but would you be able to, um, if I give you the list of the ones that we've talked about, would you be able to give me references for them? Well, so most can... of the work I've done <clears throat> is in a variety of my books. Okay. So I'll give you the list of yeah, books. Yeah, that'd be good. Just so it's just for... So oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, so I mean, you know, I've, I've got lots of books in these fields. Yeah, so and, I'll um, put them in the show notes of the podcast so that people want to go and find more. Yeah, yeah, like Wellbeing, Productivity, and Happiness at Work is a yeah, very yeah. good book. You'll like that. And yeah. it's good case study examples of companies. Okay, good. Specific yeah. companies like Rolls-Royce and who do things, mm. you know. Um, so I'll tell you the... Yeah, that'd be really I'll good. I'll tell you a list of books. Yeah, that'd be great. And then I can... Okay, I'll, and you I'll can, put, you can put them together. Yeah, that's fine. I'll do that. Okay. Okay. Um, all right, so is there anything else then? Anything else on the, the topic or themes of around emotion and mental health and well-being and stress in the workplace? Anything that we that, that you think is important? No, I think, I think we've kind of covered it. Mm. Um, other than to say that it's no longer kind of a fuzzy uh, nice-to-have. Mm. It's a must-have now. Yeah. Uh, really, from a variety of points of view for the UK economy, aside from you individually. Yeah. You know, one in four people suffer from a common mental disorder in the workplace. It's costing us mental ill health in the workplace, costing about a hundred billion a year. Mm. It's really bad yeah. from that point of view, and it's a productivity problem. Yeah. It's a big productivity problem. Government un now understands that, and DWP and DH, 
Department of Health are really on top of this now, particularly DWP, mm. about the mental health issues. And if you look at incapacity benefit due to mental ill health, uh, the biggest biggest cost of, of uh, incapacity benefit, 40% of it, is for mental right. ill health in the yeah, workplace. Okay. It's bigger than cancer. Yeah. So we, we have an issue. Mm. It's a it's an individual health issue, yeah. but it's a national productivity issue too. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Okay. Well, in that case, thank you very okay, much, Karen good. Cooper. Thank you for your time. Yeah, for no problem. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. Written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox. Edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.